0: Welcome to 1867 and All That, episode 23, Rebellion Redux. On the evening of February 13th, 1849, Louis LaFontaine rose in his seat to make a special announcement. A year ago, he had formed a government with Robert Baldwin, the first truly responsible government in the Canadas. For the last year, the reformers had proceeded slowly, edging their way towards exercising their full powers. Now, in midwinter, LaFontaine was ready to act. In a legislature that had, until recently, banned the official use of French, in that united province which had been founded to punish lower Canada for its role in the rebellion, to assimilate away the French fact in the Canada's, and to make the colony more governable, now La Fontaine stood above all others, a veritable prime minister in a cabinet and party government. The British-appointed governor, Lord Elgin, had so far acted with discretion, with restrained humility, in allowing his ministers to lead. And so, LaFontaine rose to propose a law that would bring the Union full circle, returning to the very issue which had brought it all about in the first place, rebellion. If Lower Canada was truly to be included in government, LaFontaine suggested then it was time to pay back those lower Canadians who had suffered in the rebellion a decade ago. It was time for the losses of the rebellion to be made good. Upper Canada had not been forced to wait. Way back in 1841 the Canadian legislature had passed a bill compensating upper Canadians who suffered losses in that rebellion. Then in 1846, the Tory government under Draper had created a commission which recommended something similar be done for Lower Canada. That was a time when Draper was wooing French Canadians to come on side and join with the two Denis Benjamins, Viget and Papineau, and form together a double majority. But the French Canadian partners hadn't come, and Draper's government took no action on rebellion losses for Lower Canada. Now. LaFontaine finally would act. The one problem? Well, the opposition, of course, and a great many other Canadians, especially British Montrealers, who were determined to stop them at any cost. Okay. This week, we're finally at the crescendo moment of the whole series, the Rebellion Losses Bill of 1849, and the tumultuous impact it wreaked on the Canadas. In some ways, we've been building towards this moment all series. We started with the rebellions, locating how those emerged out of anger at the constitutional system in the Canadas, and especially how powerful this frustration was in Lower Canada. We moved on through the failure of rebellions, to the struggles of the 1840s to figure out how the Canadas could be governed. We watched as the arguments for responsible government, a kind of loyalist democratic movement, gained ground until first in Nova Scotia and then in the Canadas, responsible government won out. Through the great and glorious drama of the political dispatch, or maybe it's dry and delicate phrasing, take your pick. But regardless, the British gave way. British North America had come so far, or had it. As we find out this week, the gradual acceptance of responsible government papered over some rather profound differences. And when LaFontaine stood up in the house on that night in mid-February of 1849, he discovered, if he hadn't already guessed, that those disagreements could threaten to overwhelm him and his government. To LaFontaine and his allies, nothing could have been simpler or more fair than the Rebellion Losses Bill. In that terrible civil calamity of the late 1830s, many had suffered. Homes were burned, crops lost, and men and women had fled for their lives as armed warfare invaded the countryside. The government had already compensated those in Upper Canada who experienced financial hardship. Why not do the same now for Lower Canada? Surely the disparity, the fact that it had not yet been done, showed the unjust racial and religious animosity which divided the Canadas and which animated the Tory opposition. The fact that it was French Lower Canada that went uncompensated was not a coincidence. And on this point, La Fontaine and his supporters could point to the excessively divisive rhetoric of their opponents who so often decried French domination. It was not only fair to overcome this discrimination, but also symbolically significant. If the united province truly would be united, then it mattered that the two Canadas stood in equality. The trick was that the reformers weren't particularly concerned with questions of guilt. It didn't especially matter to La Fontaine and his supporters whether those who suffered damages and who would now be compensated had supported the rebellion or not the reformers exercised a logic which said, we're all in it together, let bygones be bygones, let's not fuss about issues like treason. The same was definitely not the case with many Tories in the assembly, and many British Canadians more generally. To them, rebellion had been treason. It mattered very much whether someone had or had not supported the rebellion. At first, Lafontaine's bill proposed that the government should simply follow the courts in deciding who was and who was not a rebel. Surely this would be the the simplest option. If someone was guilty of treason or some other crime, then they wouldn't be compensated. The problem here was that the system failed to account for the general amnesty which had cleared the names of many of the rebellion's leaders. Those amnestied could claim compensation, and they did so. Even Wolfred Nelson, the rebel general who had led the campaign at Saint-Denis and who now sat in the House supporting La Fontaine, had submitted a claim for £1,200, which, under La Fontaine's suggested rules, he would be paid. Other rebel leaders left as exiles and were never tried at all, and so could submit their own claims. Still, many rebel supporters had just not faced criminal action out of decisions of expediency at the time. But undergirding all of this, there was the fact that the rebellion in Lower Canada differed profoundly in its nature from the rebellion in Upper Canada. In Upper Canada, Mackenzie had struggled to get support in a bungled campaign that was quickly quashed. In Lower Canada, in contrast, support for the Patriot cause had been fairly widespread. Even if when push came to shove, many habitants had fled when faced with the prospect of armed combat the Patriot cause more generally had been widely supported. The soldiers and the militia had burned homes as a warning of the costs of supporting rebellion. In Saint-Eustache, and especially at saint benoit this got well out of hand, causing vast destruction. But the overall emphasis was on quelling popular support for rebellion. The damages were often intentionally inflicted, especially by the militia, as a policy of war. For those who fought in the Loyalist cause in 1837 and 1838, the idea of treating possible supporters of rebellion as victims, or at least not strenuously trying to distinguish friend from foe after the fact, and to pretend that support for the rebellion did not matter at all, this was an insult. It amounted to paying wages for treason. And so there the issue lay, with two diametrically opposed views, each taking either side of a government measure, each side certain of the justness of its own cause. Even before La Fontaine sat down that evening in the assembly, He realized that it wasn't going to end well. The house erupted in fury over La Fontaine's proposal. You have to imagine who it was who sat in this room. Wolfrid Nelson was there, as I mentioned the leader at Saint-Denis, supporting La Fontaine. Louis-Joseph Papineau sat in the assembly, the leader of the Patriot, ironically at this point not a supporter of La Fontaine often. On the other side sat Alan McNabb, the stout Loyalist General from Upper Canada. Other militia captains from English-speaking Montreal were in the Assembly too. And so was John Prince from down near Windsor. Remember him? He was the militia captain who showed up just at the very end of our series on on the rebellions. When a Hunter's Lodge crew went on a deadly rampage through Windsor, And there, at the very end, came John Prince, late to the show, but determined to punish the rebels, and executing every captive he could find. His actions had caused serious embarrassment to the British government, who thought he should have been charged for his actions. But Prince had escaped sanction because he was so popular. And here he was, right in the assembly, across from someone like Nelson and LaFontaine, Nelson who had fought on the opposing side. Prince and McNabb and others leapt to their feet in indignation when LaFontaine made his announcement. And over the next month, as the Assembly debated the bill day by day, they waged an all-out campaign to stop the rebellion losses bill. military language is only partly overblown. The whole thing was raucous. Assemblymen on either side shouted each other down. The visitors' gallery could be even worse, with visitors hurling insults at the assemblymen. One late night session led to the speaker forcibly ordering that the gallery be cleared. At another time, Alan McNabb and the promising reformer from Upper Canada W. H. Blake, they went toe-to-toe, each one accusing the other of treason. Someone gallantly had to escort the ladies to cover when it seemed that it all would turn to violence. And then, of course, there were the duels or the challenges. Even the young John A. Macdonald got in on the action at one point. He and William Blake threatened each other and then exchanged the ritual challenges. Others went around the Parliament trying to head the whole thing off before one of the two finally got hurt. The Speaker demanded that they both appear before him to be punished, and then Blake couldn't be found. Eventually, cooler heads prevailed, and the ritual gunshots at dawn were prevented. But you get the idea. Anyone who thinks Parliament today is raucous hasn't seen anything. A few taunts across the room and stomping of feet or banging on desks is only the half of it. In the middle of all the parliamentary action, the leader of the Upper Canadian Rebellion, William Lyon Mackenzie, chose this as the time to return to Upper Canada. For the moment, it was just a short trip. He came as the executor of several estates, traveling throughout Upper Canada to visit various properties involved in his duties. But wherever he went, controversy followed. Crowds gathered and burned effigies of the rebel leader. In Toronto, a mob raced to Robert Baldwin's house when rumors spread that he was hiding there. Mackenzie received threats. One note threatened that death would come for him by any means, by pistol, by dagger, by club, and by poison. Still, despite the chaos and the threats, the reformers had a majority in the assembly. In both Upper and Lower Canada and their majority held. By March 9th of 1849, after a month of vicious back and forth, the bill passed final reading. Canada's responsible government had spoken. The Rebellion Losses Bill would be law. Or would it? The bill made it through Parliament, but in order for it to become the law of the land, the Governor-General Lord Elgin needed to affix his signature. Would he do it? Would he follow the advice of his popularly elected assembly, or could he be convinced by the bill's opponents to refuse the assembly, and, of course, its executive? It was an incredible predicament. Surely, the reason the British had remained so opposed to responsible government for so long, at least in principle, was to prevent exactly this kind of situation, where a governor would be asked to accede to the wishes of a democratically elected government, which wanted to take an action which seemed so poised to insult the British connection itself. And yet, this is the situation Elgin faced, He came to the Canadas armed with his instructions to follow the wishes of the people and their representatives. They had now provided that advice. For over a month, Elgin did nothing. All across the Canadas, a campaign raged, calling on him not to sign the bill. Tory papers demanded that he step in and deny what they saw as an unjust action on the part of the reform-dominated assembly. And reform papers, of course, accused the Tories of not respecting responsible government. For over a month, Lord Elgin remained at Monklands, his estate just outside Montreal, waiting. Safer, perhaps, to do nothing, at least for a while. Then, on April 25th, 1849, perhaps when he hoped that enough time had passed and he could safely take action, Elgin settled into his horse-driven carriage, and set out on the short trek into Montreal. There were several bills to be signed into law and these needed attending to. As Elgin took his place in the Legislative Council and began to sign the bills, several visitors in the gallery realized what he was about to do. They booed and hissed. Others ran out into the street to announce what was happening. By the time Elgin stepped out of the parliamentary buildings to get back into his carriage, crowd had gathered and they were not pleased. They shouted at Elgin and bombarded him with garbage and eggs and stones. The governor rushed into the carriage and raced away, but his escape didn't stop the crowd. Criers shouted for a large meeting later that night. A newspaper rushed out an evening edition with headlines like, Disgrace of Great Britain Accomplished! Canada Sold and Given Away! They called readers to the protest meeting, blaring Anglo-Saxons to the struggle. Local fire brigades paraded through the streets ringing their bells. By 8 p.m. that night, a crowd of about 1,500 people gathered in the Champ de mars Speaker after speaker revved up the crowd, denouncing the Rebellion Losses Bill and the fact that Elgin had just signed it into law. Finally, one man, Alfred Perry, took the rostrum and demanded action. Follow me, he shouted, to the Parliament buildings. The crowd raced through the streets to where Parliament was meeting in session that night. The first sign of trouble to those in the assembly was the sound of shattered glass as rocks crashed through the windows. Then several men wielding bats crashed through the assembly doors itself. They charged into the assembly, shouting their defiance. Harry strode up to the speaker and shouted, I dissolve this French house. More and more of the crowd rushed into the buildings. Soon, they had wrecked desks and chairs, constructing a pier in the middle of the room. Someone smashed the gas pipes, feeding the lights, and fire erupted. It spread quickly, enveloping the room's velvet drapes. Through it all, the Speaker is said to have insisted on officially closing the meeting and then trying as decorously as possible under the rather strange circumstances to lead the members out to safety. But it was difficult. Perry saw a portrait of Louis-Joseph Papineau hanging in a place of honour on the wall and he ripped it down. At the other end of the building, a number of legislative councillors had become trapped on the second story and had to slide down the banisters to safety. Miraculously, no one died in the fire. Outside the building, the crowd lingered and the fire crews, who might normally be expected to put out the fire, did not do so. It probably didn't help that the captain of Montreal's Volunteer Fire Brigade was none other than Alfred Perry, the man who had led the assault on Parliament. Perry, meanwhile, had gathered up the ceremonial mace. He led a crowd to a local hotel, Donegan's, where Alan McNabb had retreated. Perry presented McNabb with the mace in a mock honour ceremony. And that was how Montreal's and Canada's Parliament burned. If the Reform ministers thought that a night's rest and a new day would end the chaos, they were mistaken. The crowds took up the next day in the same spirit of fury. All through the day, crowds gathered, restless with anger. They trounced through the town, searching out targets on which to vent their rage. It was a bad time to be a Reform minister. Or, especially, the landlord of a reform minister in Montreal. The mob went to the offices of the reform paper, The Pilot, and ransacked the building. They sought out La Fontaine's house, smashing windows, ripping up floorboards, and breaking china. Then they went round the boarding houses where Robert Baldwin and other non Montreal resident MLAs stayed. No one was safe, only armed guards at some ministers' homes managed to prevent damage being done. Then news went out that authorities had arrested Alfred Perry and several other prominent leaders of the riots from the night before. When constables tried to move Perry and then the other prisoners to a safer location, a crowd surrounded them. The crowd was in the midst of stripping the constables of their uniforms when Alfred Perry reassured the crowd that he was fine. He convinced them to let the constables take him to jail. But when they all arrived at the new jail with the crowd as security, the prisoners were set up in the most comfortable room in the building. Someone fetched the chef from one of Montreal's most famous restaurants, Dolly's Chop House, to serve dinner for the prisoners. Perry ended up feasting that night on roast meats, sweet desserts, and fine wine. Soldiers took to the streets over the next several days to try to keep the peace. The reform ministers refused to be cowed. They asserted that the first expenses to be paid out of the Rebellion Losses Bill Fund would go to those whose property the crowd had just damaged. The commissioner of the peace, Etienne Taché planned to enrol Irish and French canal workers as special constables to keep the peace. But when these men were training, the crowd attacked them. For several days, the streets were not safe. It looked as if a civil war was in the offing in Montreal. The authorities eventually, in the face of threats and intimidation, released Alfred Perry and the other ringleaders the collapse of the rule of law so alarmed some Tories that even those who hated the Rebellion Losses Bill began to tone down their rhetoric and try to keep the peace. The Reform ministers were certain that in all of this they would not back down, and they planned a campaign to gather addresses of loyalty to Lord Elgin for his actions. It was a truly bizarre sight, Tory mobs rocked Montreal, denouncing the actions of the Governor-General and Reform Ministers gathered to express their loyalty and devotion to the Crown. Later in the week, after the Assembly had passed a resolution of loyalty and support for Lord Elgin, the Governor-General decided to take one more trip into town in order to officially receive this show of support. It wasn't going to go well. Elgin got in the carriage with his brother-in-law and, with an armed cavalry escort, headed to Montreal. In the city, the crowds had already gathered. When the assembly members set out to walk from their temporary headquarters to where they would officially greet Elgin, the crowd set upon them, chanting and shouting their anger, hurling dead rats and garbage on the members who were trying not too successfully to hold on to their dignity. A municipal official attempted to read out the riot act, only to be hit in the face with an onion. Just then, Elgin's carriage pulled up to be greeted with jeers from the crowd. Elgin was forced to flee the carriage amidst a barrage of detritus and run into the building. Once inside, he received the addresses from the government, which assured him of the loyal support of Canadians in the government and in other parts of the colony. It was all very touching, but however warm the sentiments of those inside the building, Elgin still had to somehow escape the anger of those waiting for him outside. He ended up sneaking out a side door and dashing into the waiting carriage. Even still, the crowd found him. As the carriage raced away, the locals, who knew the streets of the town well, caught up to him a short distance away at a tricky intersection. Rocks crashed down on the carriage, denting its sides. One rock smashed inside the carriage, knocking Elgin's brother-in-law on the head. Blood poured down into the carriage as, somehow, the driver pushed the horses forward to make the escape. From there, Elgin raced back to Monklands. And there, behind a guard... Elgin would stay. It just wasn't safe to be out in Montreal amidst the rebellion Losses Bill mob. That attack on Elgin was the height of the crisis. But still, fear lingered, and moments of chaos popped up repeatedly in Montreal, and then elsewhere across the Canadas over the next several months. On May 9th, A group of reformers held a banquet at a Montreal hotel to show their support for Elgin and the government. And a mob of Tories invaded the hotel, breaking glasses and overturning tables. This time, though, the reformers had come prepared and armed. The two sides exchanged gunfire, wounding three guests before the soldiers finally showed up to clear away the mess. In Upper Canada, in towns like Newmarket, Hamilton and Coburg, crowds gathered to vent their displeasure. They burned effigies of Elgin and the reform leaders. Reformers themselves organized a mass campaign of loyal addresses to show their support for Elgin. Everyone now had eyes on London. What would they do? The Tories had hoped to convince Elgin to refuse to sign the bill into law, but he'd signed it. Now, they sent delegates to London hoping to convince the British government to disallow the legislation. They also now demanded that Lord Elgin be recalled. If a British governor could not protect British interests, could not defend the British in a British colony, then what use was he? The Reform Ministry also sent delegates, but they defended Elgin and argued in favour of allowing the bill to stand, to not interfere with responsible government. All summer, Canadians waited to hear what London would decide and what Elgin's fate would be. Although the explosive anger of April died down, violence and resentment periodically burst to the surface. On July 12th, that annual day of Protestant-Catholic conflict and Irish-Protestant marches, an orange parade led to the murder of a Catholic by an orangeman. Then, the next week, Chaos erupted at a concert in Montreal when someone in the crowd shouted for the playing of the French revolutionary song La Marseillaise. Then in August, when Montreal authorities tried to finally enforce the rule of law by rearresting Alfred Perry and several other ringleaders of the April riots, mobs took to the streets to demand their release. The crowds vastly outnumbered the troops, and they marched to Lafontaine's house, where they pelted the home with stones. By this point, the reform ministers were learning to strenuously defend themselves. From inside the home, shots rang out, and one man in the crowd was killed. This wasn't going to calm the waters. Over the next several days, the killing only led to more anger. Hundreds showed up at the man's funeral, waving placards, reading things like Murder, the First Anglo-Saxon Blood. When LaFontaine testified at the inquest into the man's death, there were rumors that he would be assassinated. This didn't happen, and the inquest exonerated LaFontaine, but he did need to be escorted away by troops to ensure his safety. Most of the violence at this point was confined to Montreal. Across the Canadas, Tories erupted in anger. Many called for Elgin to be recalled and the Rebellion Losses Bill to be quashed. But the extra-legal violence of the crowd also alarmed many, and not only reformers. The rule of law at this point had become impossible to enforce. Colonel George Wetherall, remember him from his role in leading troops to Saint-Denis, where he was defeated by the Wolford Nelson-led Patriot Force? Well... By this point, Wetherall was a special magistrate assigned with the duty of bringing justice in the wake of the April riots. But Wetherall resigned in frustration when authorities were forced to release, yet again, Alfred Perry and the other ringleaders. The British government, for its part, backed up their man Elgin. They had made their decision to allow responsible government. And while they expressed frustration that Elgin didn't seem to be able to enforce the law in Montreal, they were not going to cave into the crowd and turn on Elgin. The rebellion losses, Bill, and Elgin himself would stay. What's more, Elgin conferred with Lafontaine and the reform government and decided that Montreal itself would have to suffer. It just wasn't safe to keep the capital in Montreal anymore. It would have to move, and so. After a lot of heated debate between upper and lower Canadians in the government, they came to the most Canadian solution of all, to split the difference between the two rival sections and have an alternating capital shared between two cities, Toronto and Quebec. Every five years, between each parliament, the capital would move from one city to the next. For the rest of the current session, the capital would move to Toronto and because Toronto would get it first, they would only get it for two more years until the end of this current parliament. In the next parliament, the capital would move to Quebec for the next five years. How did Canadians respond? What happened when it became clear that the democratically elected government of La Fontaine and Baldwin would be allowed to do what it wanted and enforce its own legislation? Well, That, too, made for a rather unique denouement to the whole affair. There were essentially two kinds of organized responses from the opposition. The first was in some ways the most bizarre, when some Tories saw that the British government would not rescind the Rebellion Losses Bill. They suggested that what British Canadians should do was to separate from Britain. They demanded that Canada be annexed to the United States. That's right, the only way to remain British was to cease to be British. Annexationist sentiment had, perhaps not surprisingly, been growing in French Canada amongst that group of liberals around the paper L'Avenir, the supporters of Papineau against La Fontaine. For this group, who would come to be called the Rouge, the Reds, the British style parliamentary democracy advocated by La Fontaine was just too tame. They looked, a little naively, it must be said. To the fate of Louisiana where they somehow pretended to see that French success could happen within the United States and they concluded that only Republican institutions could really lead to French freedom in North America. Now in the aftermath of the rebellion losses bill and when it became clear that the British would not recall Elgin the Rouge found themselves with some unexpected new allies many of the scions of English Montreal, the business elite and others, began to think that annexation was their only hope of being freed from French domination in the Canadas, at least as they saw it. And so you had the creation of that most bizarre but not uncommon of political alliances, one based on the enemy of my enemy is my ally, where Rouge Republicans joined with British lower Canadians to demand that Canada be annexed to the United States. The whole movement reached its peak by October and November of 1849, when a Montreal group published its Annexationist Manifesto. Signed by leading English Montrealers, it was the ultimate sign of defeatism from the group who clearly could see no way forward. This kind of approach turned out though to have a limited appeal outside Montreal. By early 1850, the economy was again picking up. Trade was increasing, and a great deal of the anger at British free trade policies, which had bolstered anti-British feeling, well, it now dissipated. The reformed government pushed for reciprocity, that is, free trade, with the United States. This wouldn't come for another four years, but it did offer a less drastic approach to improving Canadian fortunes than the one the annexationists were proposing. Anti-Americanism had always been a main ingredient of British North American identity, and so the annexationists were pushing against the stream. Another Tory response to the Rebellion Losses Bill controversy was the creation of the British North American League. This organization, too, was created to defend the British against what some of its members saw as French domination. But very early on, the organization decided against annexation. When they met for a large general meeting in July of 1849 in Kingston, the local assemblyman, John A. Macdonald, was in attendance. The meeting was something of a gathering of conservatism from across the Canadas. Although some annexationists showed up, they were in the minority. The League itself professed that something had to be done, that loyalty ought to remain a mainstay of British American, that is, Canadian, identity. But that something would have to change. And of the three resolutions passed at that convention, one sticks out in retrospect. It wouldn't be acted on right away. In fact, after the convention, no direct action would come on this issue. But it did herald a future that lay not far off. For in the aftermath of the Rebellion Losses Bill, and rejecting the call of the annexationists, the British American League suggested that there could be an alternate solution to the political problems in the Canadas, And this would come in what? Well, in a union of all of the colonies of British North America. In a confederation of those colonies, in fact. A confederation of all the colonies in British North America. And that was an idea that would stick around. Thanks for listening. Parliament is burned. Tories called for annexation and the recalling of a British appointed governor. Reformers professed their loyalty. And Canada's burgeoning parliamentary democracy, its newfound responsible government, was tested and passed the test, if only barely. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast. Tell a friend about the podcast. Maybe some people you know aren't familiar with this great story of Canadian rebellion and the fight for kind of a local democracy. I'd love it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and drop me a line via the website www.1867allthat.com. So we're done. Almost. Up until this point, just like with the rebellions, we've been in a kind of storytelling mode. Next week, it's the final episode of season one, and I'll try to make sense of what we've just covered, including not only the fight over responsible government, but also how the rebellions fit into this. And maybe even, as I hinted a moment ago, we'll look forward to the 1850s and the 1860s and the movement towards a British North American, a Canadian confederation. As usual, 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett. The sound engineering is by Rob Viscardis at Paradigm Pictures, and the whole thing is generously supported by Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.